Okay, we're going to talk about the Festival of Purim today, and it's actually the wrong time of year for Purim. It's a springtime festival. Uh, there are five holidays, holy days, prescribed in the Torah, and then there were a couple added by the Jewish community after the exile. Uh, Purim is one, and uh, you're probably more familiar with Hanukkah. You know, that's not early on in the Torah. That's, that was added by the post-exilic community. Um, but the festival of Purim is what we're going to learn today because it's all about the, the end of the book of Esther, the deliverance from the threat of Haman. Um, many of you recall, if you've been here for the series, we've been, what, about eight weeks now? We're, we're finishing this, the second month of Esther, and today's the end of the line. But uh, it's unique among the canon. It's the only book without mentioning God. It's the only book set in Persia. Uh, we're used to Bible books being set in Israel. We're also used to Bible books being mostly about men. Uh, you see women a good bit throughout the, uh, uh, the Old and New Testament, but usually not featured as the hero of the prominent character. Uh, in biblical context, Esther would come chronologically near the end of the Old Testament books. And it's set in Persia, which is known for a couple things in world history. Specifically, the well-developed bureaucracy, a good postal system, the fact that the king was under the law, that's key to the story. Because once the king makes a decree, he can't just snap his fingers and undo it. Uh, so far in Esther, uh, we've read through the middle of chapter 9, and we've seen lots of things happen. I'm not going to go through these in detail. Uh, it's a fairly short book, so if you joined us late, just I'd encourage you to go back and read it. Now, now we have podcasts, and so uh, I think that's pretty cool. Did, did I pass that on? Samantha sent me an email this week telling me how many people had been on our podcast the last month. I was shocked and delighted. Uh, it's not just a few. I mean, I would have guessed, you know, eight or ten, <laughs> but it's, it's a good many. And so uh, I was just thrilled to hear that. So uh, I'm grateful to Samantha for hooking us up with that, and, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that people are using it. Several themes in Esther recur. You see them over and over again. You see pairs of things. You see a couple different guys enraged. You see uh, uh, an emphasis on what kind of clothing they're wearing. Uh, reversals of fortune occur over and over again. It's a very funny story because of the dramatic irony. Oftentimes, we, the reader, know things that the characters don't know. And that's a funny situation if you're watching a movie. It's a funny situation if you're reading a book in the Bible. Uh, the writer of Esther uh, cares a lot about Persian law and government. We learn a lot of details about the Persian government because of that. A lot of feasting lot of, and, and some fasting, uh, but food or its absence is key. And then one of the things I noticed is uh, there's a lot of questionable advice that gets followed and leads to bad consequences, and that's just kind of a basic, a basic um, principle of wisdom. You know, good decisions, good results, bad decisions, you know, poor consequences. And then what I would consider one of the main themes of Esther is you see coincidences over and over again that look like coincidences to the, to the, at the first look, but I just don't believe in that. I believe this is an example of God's providential hand in history. You don't recognize the fire from heaven, but these circumstances that, that seem to just work out nicely for the Jews, uh, I believe is an example of how God works behind the scenes and through natural means to preserve his people. I think he does it today, and I think he has done it through history. We're down to really three characters since Haman's died. Now we've just got King Xerxes and Mordecai, who's the number two in the land. He's the grand vizier. He's the sort of the vice king of Persia. And his young cousin Esther, who is the queen of Persia. So this uh, uh, these two Jewish people have, have risen to a, a place of prominence and power in the Persian Empire. The purposes of Esther are 
I think, to encourage the Jewish community that's, that's at the point of, at the time when it's written, is very scattered. Uh, the majority of Jews did not come back to Jerusalem after the exile. Uh, the majority of them remained scattered and remain so even into the 20th century. And, and now you see Jewish people coming back to Israel more than ever before. Um, and, and, you know, what, how do they feel, how do, how do they see God's care for them? Has God forgotten about them since they don't live in Israel? Does God care for them since they're not close to Jerusalem? Well, this, was, would have been, this book would have been an encouragement that God still is looking out for his people. Also, I mentioned this before, it shows God's providential care for his people uh, throughout history. And then a very practical purpose for this book is to introduce a new festival. Uh, the Festival of Purim is, a, is to be celebrated according to the, the end of the book of Esther from now on. And God's people should remember it. So let's go back to the text. Uh, Esther chapter 9 verse 18 says this. The Jews in Susa, however, assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That's why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. It's common in the Old Testament for the Old Testament text to introduce a festival. If you look at Deuteronomy 16, you'll see three holidays uh, described there in the standard set. You read about Passover and the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. The festival of Purim, according to this text, is going to be celebrated two days. The 14th of Adar most of the, in most of the world and the 15th of Adar only in Jerusalem. Jerusalem sort of corresponds to Susa because there were two days of fighting in Susa. The city Jews celebrated the feast a day later than the, the Jews in the province. And that's why Jews in Jerusalem celebrate Purim a day later than Jews everywhere else, even today. Okay, now I'm going to leave the text and take kind of a risky plunge into, uh, into new territory. We tried this in the first service, and... Uh, I don't know, it was moderately successful. I may be embarrassed about this later or live to regret it, but uh, I'll tell a story first, and then we'll, we'll try something new we haven't tried here before. Um, many of you know who've, who've listened to me talk for a while or, or hung out with me at all, I, I, I'm sort of a, a fan of, uh, not sort of, I'm, I'm a fan of the TV show Saturday Night Live. There aren't very many shows I watch every week, but I watch that one almost every week for about 30 years. You know, I was in college or high school when it started, and I know the cast has been up and down, and every once in a while there's stuff on there that's embarrassing or objectionable, but for the most part, I love their political humor, I love, I mean, for me, I learn a lot about presidential politics watching them make fun of presidential politics, and I, I enjoy that. But I realized a couple months ago that my favorite skit, perhaps of all time, on this show isn't, is my favorite not because of how funny it is, but because of how fun it looked to when the actors were doing it. And I'll go ahead and set the stage for you. I, I, I tried to find the clip, but copyright laws prohibited me from, it just wasn't available. But uh, I'll try to describe the scene. A couple of seasons ago, the host was an actor named Peter Sarsgaard. And he's, um, he's not like a leading man, not a typical host, but he's a pretty well-respected character actor. And uh, the skit that I liked the most was the setting was like a convention hall, maybe a, a banquet room at like a hotel, um, a room a, a little bit smaller than this, and they're having a pirate convention. And all, every member of the cast is involved in this skit. So, you know, all the ones that you see doing these other things, they're all dressed like pirates, and there's a guy behind the podium leading this parliamentary meeting, and they're voting on things and making motions, and, and it starts off being like a normal meeting, except they're all dressed like pirates. 
but then they vote on something. They're trying to vote on where to go to lunch. And like, do you want to go to McDonald's? No. Do you want to all go to, to Burger King? No. Do you want to all go to Arby's? And uh, they, they, that, that's a big hit. And, and it's, it's a big hit. They, they just they jump out of their seats and Arby's. And, and they just are thrilled. And, and the, the, the silly thing about it to me is it's not that funny a joke. Pirates like to say R, okay? It's just one joke. But then they do it, they play it to death in this skit. But the thing I like about the skit is the exuberance that they bring. It just seemed to me like being a cast member on that show would have been really fun for those few minutes because they're, they're all dressed up in their pirate costumes and they're just acting like fools um, from getting to say R. And so to finish the story, the, the big joke of it is their guest speaker at the pirate convention is the, the moderately famous actor Peter Sarsgaard. And of course, when he's introduced, they just go nuts and Sarsgaard, and they're just thrilled that this guy's their speaker. And he talks to him for a minute and he finds out they don't know anything about him, they don't care anything about his career, they don't know anything about his movies. They just like saying his name because it's Sarsgaard. And so that's, so what's that have to do with us today? You know, what's that have to do with Esther? The Festival of Purim is somewhat of a raucous festival. In fact, my Bible dictionary says that traditionally it's celebrated with a good bit of wine. Now, we won't be introducing that feature here. Um, but uh, in fact, uh, my Bible dictionary quoted a Talmud saying that says, encourage people to drink wine until you could not, no longer tell the difference between the blessings of Mordecai and the curses of Haman, which is, you know, that's a lot. Uh, so. Uh, um, and in fact, that's one of the theories for why the name of God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther. That's just a theory. I'm not sure this is right. But, uh, you know, it's the only Bible book without any mention of the name of God. And one of the theories is that it's such a party when they celebrate Purim, they read the book of Esther out loud and they respond to the names that are mentioned. And, and some people have suggested, well, maybe that's too much of a party for us to mention the name of Yahweh while that's going on, and so maybe that's why the name's absent from the book, although his presence is clearly felt. So now I'm gonna call on my assistants. Um, you guys help us out with this? Um, here's, this is the stage direction you'll need. This is typically at the Feast of Purim, the entire book of Esther is read out loud. We won't be reading the whole book, I'm just gonna read the end of the book. And uh, I think there might be enough for everybody. Um, but um, maybe not. If, I hope we don't run out towards the back. And only two names you need to focus on. And this, this shows me a little something about how sexist ancient society was. Esther is not one of the names we respond to, which is kind of strange to me. She's the title of the book. But whenever I read the name Haman, not every time I say it, but whenever I read it from the Bible text, your job is to respond by stamping your feet or booing, or hissing, or all three. Re respond negatively to Haman, out loud. And whenever I read the name of Mordecai, your job, you're like the pirates at the convention going to Arby's. You can, you can jump out of your seat, you, you can say the name Mordecai, you can blow your noisemakers there. Um, but uh, we're gonna celebrate Mordecai and his greatness and how God used him, okay? So does everybody understand? We don't do anything for Esther. We don't do anything when we hear the name of King Xerxes. But when we hear Haman, it's bad. And when we hear Mordecai, it's not just good. It's 
joyfully great. Okay, are you you ready? So Esther chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai, there you go. He recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Now that first part of the verse where it says Mordecai recorded these events, some think that means he wrote the book of Esther. I'm not so sure about that. It, it just more plainly seems to say that he wrote about the fighting and, and the celebration that, that followed. And this is a common theme in the Bible. Mourning into joy, danger into deliverance. In Nehemiah 8, they read the law and... And people were convicted by it. And read what Nehemiah said, uh, Nehemiah 8.10. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. I, I, I think I typed that wrong. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So they were convicted by the law. And Nehemiah was saying, you know, this is a time of joy. This is a time to celebrate. Um, this next passage I'm going to read from Psalm, I would consider this to be the key point of today's message. So if amid the silliness you get distracted, come back to Psalm 30 and focus in on this is the point of today. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. I know, I know the people in this room are many of you, and I know that for many of you that's your testimony. And today let's remember the goodness of God. And let's remember to be thankful for what he's done for us. Uh, It ought to be a joyous time when we think about what God did. Uh, The the passage we read in Joshua at the beginning of the service was, build a monument so your kids will remember how you crossed the Jordan River on dry land. The passage we read in Revelation, this is how we're going to spend eternity, praising God for the wonderful things he's done. So it's a good time to practice. Verse 22, He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written. I I didn't see that one coming. Uh, What Mordecai had written to them. Way to go, you're doing great. So take a look at all the elements of their holiday celebration, and in some ways I think it's a model for us. They had rest, feasting, joy, presence, and giving to the poor. Any of that sound familiar? I mean, most of you don't celebrate Purim because you're not Jewish, but many of you celebrate holidays this way. And it seems to me like like a Christmas celebration without every one of these things would be incomplete at our house. Verse 24, for Haman... There you go. Son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the poor, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. Uh, again, a common theme in the Bible. When you, when you plan evil, God will stop it. Sometimes not as fast as we want, but he, justice will prevail. Uh, we read Psalm 7 as the opening verse a, a, couple of, a couple weeks ago. Verse 15 says this, He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he has made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself. His violence comes down on his own head. And Deuteronomy says this, remember uh, that they uh, hanged uh, Haman on a gallows, on on a tree. Deuteronomy says this about that kind of death. 
uh, chapter 21, to, uh, verse 22. If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him the same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. I want to leave the story of Esther for just a minute and talk about Jesus. This is why the crucifixion of Christ was so devastating for, for his followers. They saw, the contemporaries of Jesus saw his crucifixion as very plain evidence that his Messiah claims could not be true. Nobody, the Messiah would not be put to death hung on a tree uh, because Deuteronomy plainly says anyone uh, uh, who hangs on a tree is under a curse. And so the followers of Jesus who saw the crucifixion, they were devastated because they thought, well, this proves it, it's over. And that's why the resurrection is so important. It vindicated the claim of, claims of Jesus. It was God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and said, yeah, he is who he said he was. Yeah, this, these, the resurrection of Jesus vindicated his claims. Okay, back to Esther, verse 25. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back into his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word pure. So I, I think that the text is plain enough. The pure was, I don't know how it looked, but, but it was a way they cast lots to decide something by chance. And so they, they named the festival for the, the pure that they cast the lots with. So if you could picture, like, if we were to decide by, um, by throwing dice, we'd call it dice day. Or by pick a card and we'll pick the day, then it would be card day. They, they cast the pure, and that's how Haman decided which day to do the executions. And that's why the festival is called Purim. Verse 26, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. Verse 28, these days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days, Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. Well, that's what we're doing here. In some ways, we're the descendants of the Jews, and we're not letting the memory of the Feast of Purim die out. So uh, I think it's appropriate that we learn about it and, and even celebrate it. Verse 29. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew... <laughs> wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. Verse 30, and Mordecai Yeah, I know I asked for this, so uh, that's good. Um, I'm, I, you know, why should the kids have all the fun? It's, it's, it's. He sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew <laughs> and Queen Esther had decreed for them and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. One thing I think about is, is when they actually do Purim, they read the whole book, you know, all ten chapters. We're just doing the, like the last chapter and a half, which is uh, I go pretty fast either way, but uh, um, I'm glad we're not doing this all the way through. <laughs> Verse 32 finishes chapter 9. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. So now we're down to just one chapter left in the whole book of Esther, and it's only three verses. So we're almost done with the book. 
King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, I'm sorry to tell you that's your last chance to play, uh, to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the annals of the kings of Medea and Persia? So this follows the same format of like Kings and Chronicles. Are his deeds not written in the annals of the king? And they are. So Xerxes, in elevating Mordecai, I mentioned this a week or so ago, was following a pattern that was common in the ancient Near East. It makes me think of Joseph. When, when Pharaoh elevated Joseph, Joseph was like vice Pharaoh. He was the number two man in all the land. And since the Pharaoh in Egypt and the king in Persia might not be getting their hands too dirty with the nitty-gritty of government, this guy is a very powerful guy. Um, He's like the chief of staff and the speaker of the house all rolled into one if we respected the president more and didn't expect him to to be too involved in government. That's, I mean, these, the pharaohs and the kings back then were were almost worshipped as borderline divine. And so the number two guy to to him would have been very powerful. Um, This is Joseph, not Mordecai. But let's listen to what Pharaoh said about Joseph back in Genesis 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Does this sound familiar? Verse verse 43, he had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to, to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. So this is how powerful that position of Grand Vizier was. Now you might say this is a thousand years before um, the book of Esther, but let's bring it closer to home. Uh, who was the, the father of King Xerxes? It was King Darius. And who was the Bible slave slash prophet who served him? That was Daniel. Let's take a look at what Daniel, uh, what Daniel said, or what it says about Daniel in, uh, in the book of Daniel 6.3. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, this exact same thing that happened to Joseph back in Egypt and happened to Mordecai uh, a generation later was about to happen to Daniel, and that set into to, to play the whole chain of events where the other jealous advisors schemed against him, got him thrown into the lion's den. It's because he was about, Daniel was about to be elevated to the same spot. So my point is the Persians were in the habit of, of giving a guy a lot of power to be number two to the king. Let's finish the book, verse 3. I told you that was the last time, but I was wrong. <laughs> Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> yeah, make the best of it on the last time. Was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. What can we learn about leadership from his example, from Mordecai's example? He worked for the good of his people, and he spoke up for their, for their welfare. Who's counting on you to lead them wisely? Are you working for their welfare? Are you speaking up on their behalf? And then the application. We're 2,500 years later. What does this have to do to, with you and me today? First of all, God thwarts the schemes of the wicked. So obviously, if you're wicked and making schemes, you know, 
that's not going to work. But more importantly, or more likely, if you're frustrated because you see the schemes of the wicked appearing to work. You know, David was frustrated by this in the Psalms. Jeremiah was frustrated. God, why do the wicked prosper? And oftentimes, God's justice doesn't come as fast as we want it to. But one of the themes of this book is just God's justice will prevail. And then secondly, we see God blessing faithful service. Mordecai was just a, a minor official in the king's court, and yet his obedience and his service where God planted him got him elevated. And Esther followed what seems to me like pretty questionable advice from Mordecai, and, and yet God used her to, do, to help deliver his people. And then the, the main point of this last part of, of the book of Esther is this. We should celebrate the deliverance of God. You know, many of us have experienced his deliverance, and we tend to be, not, not this congregation uniquely, just people in general, we tend to be people who cry out to God and are desperately aware of him in hard times, in times of trouble. And yet it's so easy to forget when times are good that God is the one who delivered us from the rough times. So I know I gave a homework assignment about a month ago, and I'm not going to go overboard with this new pattern, but, uh, but I want to give another homework assignment today and, and invite you to respond to the message somehow this week and, and a few of you to, uh, to give a testimony uh, next Sunday. So here's the assignment. Think about a time when God delivered you from an unbearable situation. It doesn't have to be life-threatening like the Jews experienced back in Persia, but some of you have been delivered from life-threatening situations. Think about that time. Secondly, tell somebody about it. Uh, articulate it. Now, it's fine with me if you pair up and do your assignments together, because I, I realize it could be awkward to go out. It would be nice to go outside the room and tell somebody the story, but I, I understand practically, you know, like you go up to a stranger in the mall and say, Hey, let me tell you about this story. They're going to be like, well, what do I care? Get away from me. But uh, uh, maybe you know somebody at work that you could tell the story to or somebody who's not here in the room who might care enough to hear this story. That would be cool. But you can pair up and tell each other your stories if you'd like. But a couple of you uh, might be moved or maybe the Holy Spirit's prompting you even now to tell the story next Sunday. And I just want to invite you to do that. Next Sunday, I'm going to, we're going to do a baby dedication. We're going to introduce the new series but not really get into any of the 12 weeks of it. And I want to leave some room for your testimonies. Uh, because I want to be orderly and, and balance out the time between the two services, if, uh, I need to know about it before next Sunday if you're going to be able to give a testimony. So either call me or just tell me after church or, uh, or send me an email so I'll know. Um, I think that's it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, what you've shown us. Lord, I thank you for what you've taught us about your faithfulness and your goodness. Lord, we want to be a people who are faithful to you and your purposes. Lord, we trust that ultimately your will will be done, your justice will prevail. Lord, I ask that you would help us to avoid uh, uh, falling into traps along the way. Lord, we don't want to be on the wrong side of that. And Lord, I ask that you would make us useful in, in, uh, um, in accomplishing your purposes. Lord, we are tools in your hand and we ask that you would use us. Lord, show us an opportunity to be a blessing to somebody outside this room this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.